page 48. And I want to just make it clear that I'm going to now move on to this subject of the role of the Jews and of Israel and everything else in God's end time purpose. Now, I just want to make it clear that I'm going to do this in two parts, so you've got to hear it through to the end, okay? Because there's two sides to this coin, and I want us. And, and what I've decided to do is, is because we're running, you know, later than I thought. I'm gonna. I don't want to rush the thing so crazily. So I want us to. Um, I'm going to look at one side primarily today, and then in the first session tomorrow morning, I'm going to be looking at the other side of the coin. So don't just sort of hold on till we get the whole picture. All right. And I've got a number of things, there are additional things to say which are, are not in your notes. So let's go to page 48. And as I point out, that this can generate strong emotions and it's hard to get Christians to take a calm, objective look at all the scriptures have to say. Immediately, sort of one phrase comes out of your mouth. You get categorized as a particular, oh, they're so-and-so. And then the rest of it, you can't be hurt, um, and I, I want you to give me a fair hearing, okay? Something, however, needs to be said about some of the unbalanced and seriously erroneous views that are being promoted on either side of this controversial subject. So I want to just begin to deal with that. First of all, I'm not going to spend time on this, but to just mention it, it exists, is, is what's called the the extreme replacement theology group, or the replacement, the or his replacement theology, which means he's a wicked man that hates the Jews, and uh, he needs to repent. Or conversely, there's the, and and that isn't really. You need to take your time to understand what's being said. I don't even like the term replacement theology, although some people have accused me of that. It's not my heart at all. Um, what I am is inclusion theology. I don't see the church replacing the Jews. I see the church and the Jews being included together in the one nation of Israel. And uh, so I want to get the Jews in and way beyond their um, inheritance as they saw it in terms of a, a promised land of 8,000 square miles and a city called Jerusalem and uh, and to just basically get back that inheritance which God certainly promised through Moses. And we're going to look at that in a moment, but uh, but see, God's plan is so much, much bigger than that. And, and in fact, if we ardently help the Jews to get into their limited natural inheritance, we're robbing them of the much richer inheritance which is theirs in Christ. So my plea is, please don't rob the Jews and confine them to 8,000 square miles of land and one city called Jerusalem, when the whole earth is theirs. And, and they are called to a, a mighty, much higher calling, which is actually the passion of the book of Hebrews, which we looked at in one of our earlier schools of the word, and that was written by a Jews to Jews to get them into their full inheritance. Amen? But the extreme replacement school, and they do exist, and I, I've met them, and probably you have, they see no special spiritual and prophetic significance in the events in the Middle East and in the re-establishment of the nation of Israel. They believe that God washed his hands of the Jews altogether with the destruction of the temple, the city of Jerusalem, and the nation of Israel in AD 70. They do not believe that God has any special end-time plan or purpose for the former promised land of Israel, present Jerusalem, or Jews. And they regard them at best as no more than another people's group that need to be evangelized. That would summarize that position. In other words, all this stuff about the Middle East, it's, it's irrelevant. 
Now, on the other hand, we get, the, and I'm going to spend a little more time on this, we get the extreme pro-Israel group. This is what characterizes them. It's good to be pro-Israel, but it's not good to be extreme in the sense that I'm going to describe it now. They seem to think that the whole of God's great end-time purpose is entirely focused on restoring the natural Jews to their own, I'm going to put the word in, natural promised land and protecting them from their enemies, regardless of Israel's political and military behavior. Although their passion for Israel's economic and political well-being is great, they seem to have little interest in getting these precious Jews to come to Jesus and be saved. I've even heard recently one of the well-known protagonists of this particular point of view, because I happened to be in a hotel somewhere and he was on television, so I thought, well, let me just hear what he has to say. And what he was basically arguing was that Gentiles need the cross, but Jews don't because they are saved by you know, the same covenant grace theology which is used by extreme Calvinists. They're saved by being descendants of Abraham. And so they don't need the cross. And I thought, well, that's dangerous and erroneous. And I've also heard it said by another one of these, uh, again on television, one of his programs, that uh, don't accuse the Jews of, of crucifying Jesus. They didn't do it. It was the Romans. <laughs> and, and, I mean, the fact is that they did. And they, at the time, said, you know, we know what we're doing, his blood be upon our heads. But it actually, finally, wasn't the Romans or the Jews. It's one of the reasons why the Passion film was so hated in certain areas, because it appeared to be anti-Semitic, because it showed what the Jews and the Romans together actually did to Jesus. But uh, it was the Father that um, orchestrated that in order that he might forgive them. The last words of Jesus concerning those that were crucifying him were, well, almost the last words were, Father, don't lay this into their charge. He wasn't saying, God, get them. And it wasn't, I don't even believe it was the, it was the fury of God that destroyed Jerusalem. I believe it was, the, it was the malice of Satan. And because of their refusal to receive Jesus as their king and receive his kingdom, he could not put a wall of protection around because his words were, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you killed the prophets, you stoned those sent unto you. How many times I would have gathered you together as a hen gathers her chickens under wings. Now, why does the hen do that? For protection. If it sees danger coming, then it gets the chicks there and does its best at the cost of its own life to be a protection to its chicks. Now, that was the attitude of Jesus. If only you'd received me as king. If only you'd let me establish my kingdom, if only you'd let me build the real temple, the real house that I wanted to build, then I could have put a wall of protection around you and the devil couldn't have touched you and you could have been the center of the evangelism that would go out to bring the whole world to my feet, but you would not. And it, Therefore, because of this, the city is left to you desolate. Now, in a way, of course, as in many of these things, it was the judgment of God, but it was the judgment of God because it had to be that way. There could have been a better way. It wasn't the vindictiveness of God, if you understand what I mean. He had to let the, the malice of Satan have its outworking, and he was helpless to protect them because of their total refusal of his lordship and his kingship to rule over them. Now, that's how I see it. I don't think it was God saying, you did that to my son. I'm going to get you for this. No, that's, not, that's not God. Amen? All right, so let's just move on. Now, the extreme pro-Israel group, their declared purpose, paragraph, I think, three under the heading extreme pro-Israel, their declared purpose of this, of this movement is that the church should show its gratitude to its Jewish origins by embracing the outward form of Jewish culture and return to its Jewish roots. 
and we could go on for hours about this, about putting on prayer shawls and, and celebrating the Shabbat and the Passover and actually far, far, taking far more time over the, the abandoned shadows and no longer glorying in the reality. Now that's wrong and that's not where God's trying to lead us. Okay? The fact is that all the historic evidence points the other way. Once the Council of Jerusalem settled the matter, as recorded in Acts chapter 15, and James gave his famous judgment, no further attempt was made to get the Gentiles to behave like Jews. In fact, from that time on, many of the Jewish Christians abandoned their Jewish religious traditions and embraced a glorious new freedom in Christ, and the most ardent protagonist of this movement was the Apostle Paul himself. He'd been more a prisoner to the rigors of the system than many, and he was glad to be rid of it. However, when these natural Jews became Arabs' descendants by faith, along with all other believers, whether circumcised or uncircumcised, they enter the kingdom of God and qualify for a much greater inheritance, which is to possess the whole earth. Do you want 8,000 square miles of the promised land, or do you want the whole earth? That's the question. In Abraham, as believers, it's the whole earth. As natural ethnic Israel, it's 8,000 square miles. The truth is that getting the Jews saved and bringing them into their full end-time role in the kingdom should be the passion of every Christian. We will be greatly enriched by their coming in. Therefore, this should have a high priority with everyone who truly loves Jesus and longs for his appearance. So here's, and I could go on, I mean, I've written the best part of a book on this, but I've got masses of stuff I could say, but I'm trying to just be concise. Now let's look now, what is the true end time purpose for the Jews? To understand this, our first major step is to come to clarity about the, what the Bible really says. A lot of scripture is devoted to this subject, and it is evidently an important subject to God, especially as we approach the dramatic events of these last days. We need to understand what God is truly saying, although all these scriptures taken and through all these scriptures taken together as a whole. We must not cling to a few proof texts that seem to support our point of view and ignore the many others which do not. One of our next problems is to understand how many of these scriptures are to be understood in strictly literal terms and how many of them are allegorical. For example, as you go through the Psalms, which we said again and again in these schools of the word, was written in the new covenant of David living in face-to-face -face presence of God with Melchizedek as the priesthood and with the one perfect sacrifice already been seen and clearly received. If you read Psalm 22, he had an actual revelation of the cross a thousand years before it took place in time. And for that reason, there was never one sacrifice for sin ever made in the tabernacle of David because the one perfect sacrifice had already been made in the eternal realm and they had grabbed hold of it. So when you read in the Psalms things like the glory of Zion and uh, all these, which Zion is it talking about? And the scepter of the kingdom goes out from, this is where we, heavenly Jerusalem already is, and we've got to see it in these terms. And sometimes a little difficult to sort out which is which. For example, Psalm 122 tells us to pray for the peace of Israel, for the, um, for the peace of Jerusalem, I'm sorry. Now my question is, which Jerusalem? If you read Psalm 122, then it's pretty obvious. Now, now what what peace? Well, if you go to the, both the, the Hebrew word for peace and to the Greek word for peace, then the, the emphasis in both these languages is on the mending of a relationship that was formerly hostile. That's the idea behind the word. So if I want to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, I want them to be reconciled to the Savior that they've rejected. Then, they, that's Ephesians 2, God took the Jews and he took the Gentiles and he reconciled them to one another and to God through the cross, thus making peace. Amen? So if I want to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, it's not that I should protect them from the political things that are going on, but what they need to do is to come to peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
in that sense, I can pray for the peace of Jerusalem, but in the other natural sense, how can I pray against what God is orchestrating in order to bring their deliverance? Hello? Now, it may be very painful, the period that they're going to go through, but the period they're going to go through is going to bring them to deliverance and salvation. And so I'm praying for the real peace. Amen? Can you hear what I'm saying? Just to keep... It, and obviously, I feel the pain and agony every time a bomb goes off in Jerusalem. And I think, oh, none of this need have happened if they hadn't rejected Jesus. It wouldn't be happening if they've already received him. And I can't ask for a, a false political wall of protection to be put around them when they're suffering the consequences of their rebellion against God. What I want to see is the rebellion against God having come to an end, so that they can have real peace with God. Amen? Because the coming of the kingdom, we're told very clearly in Isaiah 9, is the only means of having real peace. And of the increase and of his kingdom and of peace, there will be no end. So you can't have peace without the kingdom. So what I can pray for is, oh God, let those precious people in, in Jerusalem, let them have their eyes opened let them see how they rejected Jesus and let them and how they've they've become rebels against you and let their eyes be open let them make peace through our Lord Jesus Christ and let your kingdom come with its inherent ability to bring peace and then we'll really see the peace come to Jerusalem but I can't pray oh God don't let any bombs go off well, I can pray that, and I do pray that, but I know there's got to be a time of trouble in order to bring the final lasting results. Can you hear what I'm saying here? I won't do it, to, but you read Psalm 187 and tell me which... Don't read it now, just sometime. You're all turning to it. <laughs> and, and, and tell me, which, which are we talking about? Are they, are they literal or are they allegorical? That's one of the problems. Do they apply to all the natural descendants of Abraham? Or do they apply to Israel and to Jacob, who are called the sons of promise? God makes it very clear that the true descendants of Abraham were selected not by a natural ethnic descent, but by divine sovereign choice. This choice was then sealed by a right response of faith on the part of those selected, but only after they were chosen. Amen? So when God chose Abraham, he responded by cutting covenant with God, by being circumcised, by bringing tithes and offerings to Melchizedek. In other words, there was a right response of faith which sealed the relationship. God chose Israel. He did not choose Esau, but he still had to make the choice of commitment. I hope this is making sense to you. If we therefore restrict these promises of Scripture to the descendants of Jacob or Israel only, but then because of divine sovereign choice, because he said, no, I've chosen these guys. But they've rightly responded by faith, and that's sealed the covenant relationship between us. There has to be a response of faith before the, cho the choosing is sealed. Okay, is that, you got the principle. If we therefore restrict these promises of Scripture to the descendants of Jacob or Israel only, but then from on then on, start including all the natural descent of Jacob, are we any better off? Why, after several generations of selection by God's sovereign choice, accompanied by promise and faith, should the covenant and the promises suddenly revert back and begin to apply to all natural descendants, regardless of their attitudes of faith and obedience? Do you see what I'm saying? It doesn't make any sense. Is it not much more reasonable to conclude that God will still, con still continues to selectively choose and then elect those who will make a right response of faith and obedience? This was clearly the teaching of Jesus and of Paul, plus many other writers of the New Testament. Here's our principle. What does Jesus say? What do the epistles say? And then we go back to what the Old Testament says. So why should God in these last days suddenly start to include all the Jews simply because of their ethnicity when in the past he's always consistently rejected the large majority of Israel's descendants because of their unfaithfulness and their disobedience? 
Next page. Some such claims of natural descent were made by the Jews in Jesus' day. They said, we're Abraham's descendant. But Jesus said to those that hated him and tried to kill him that they were not Abraham's children. Although they claimed Abraham to be their father, he said they were not Abraham's children, but they were of their father the devil. He's talking about Jews when he said that. Amen? John 8, 37 to 56. As we move into the greater revelation of the New Testament, we find that ethnicity, circumcision, and other such factors have been completely eliminated and are now totally irrelevant. Faith alone will determine who will inherit all the promises made to believing Abraham. Many Christians today argue that the scriptures of God's promise to Abraham do not apply to natural Israel at all, but only to God's new Israel, the church, which is made up of people from all nations of the earth, including, of course, all the Jews who believe. Are these scriptures literal or allegorical? Next paragraph. In the New Testament, the church several times is several times the church is several times called the Israel of God, God's chosen people, the true Jews, the true circumcision, the true tabernacle, and the temple or house of God. These terms are used a number of times by several New Testament writers and even by some Old Testament prophets. Now let's take an example of this now. Let's just go and look at this matter of circumcision. Come to Deuteronomy. Go right back to the beginning. Come to Deuteronomy. Okay. And let's hear what God has to say about circumcision. Chapter 10. And come to verse 15. Verse 15. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, you above all people, as it is this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. In other words, I want a heart reaction, not an outward reaction. Come to Deuteronomy 30. It becomes even plainer there. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Come in at verse 5. Then the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. So that's the circumcision. Come down to verse 11. For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it too far off. It is it, not in heaven that you should say, who should, will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. No, it's not beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is near you, it's in your mouth, and it's in your heart that ye may do it. Okay, now come to verse 20. Verse 19, I call heaven and earth to witness today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that you and your sinners may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Now, that's the true circumcision. It's a passionate love for God. Amen? Now, if you go to the New Testament, you'll find that these words are picked up and applied in a New Testament way. All right, let's move on. On the other hand, in other parts of the New Testament, particularly in the Roman letter from chapters 9, verse 1, to chapter 11, verse 35, the writer is clearly talking about ethnic Israel, the natural descendants of Abraham and Jacob, and it would be bending scripture to think otherwise. So what we conclude is that the natural and the spiritual are running in climax together. Elsewhere in Romans and in some of the prophets, the most compelling interpretation is that there are two equally valid interpretations running to parallel fulfillment. 
and are applicable both to natural and to spiritual Israel at the same time. Events concerning natural Israel are like a visible clock indicating where we are on God's plan of countdown to the end of the age. Page 52. Is it possible to sort all this out? We must always allow the superior revelation of Jesus and the New Testament writers to define, explain, and correct the meaning of the Old Testament scriptures. So we start with number one. Number one, what is a Jew? The historic definition. The definition of this term has changed significantly over the centuries. In the Old Testament, it first meant literally a descendant of Judah, which was one of the sons of Jacob and one of the original 12 tribes of Israel. It was never used to describe the whole nation of God's people at that time. The whole nation were called Hebrews, or sometimes Jacob or Israel, but never called Jews. Abraham was known as a Hebrew even before Isaac and Jacob were born, but he was never called a Jew. So the first point is that Abraham was never a Jew, okay? The southern, then we get the northern kingdom going off into apostasy. I, I chopped all that out and just kept my notes brief. The southern kingdom of Judah continued for more than 100 years after the northern kingdom of Israel had disappeared. But the whole population of Judah was finally carried away to Babylon in three stages beginning in BC 608. Most sought to retain their identity in this forced dispersion. A small minority returned as Jews 70 years later and began to reoccupy the original promised land in 538 BC under the leadership of Zerubbabel. The vast majority of the Jews, however, remained scattered among the nations of the former Babylonian Empire, now the Persian Median Empire. They gathered in small synagogues to pray and to read the ancient scriptures. No animal sacrifice was practiced as it was understood that this could only take place in the rebuilt temple of Jerusalem. These returned exiles normally used the term Jew, but sometimes used the wider term Israel or Jacob, although only Judah and Benjamin remained. So the term Israeli or Jew gradually became synonymous for those who returned to live in Judah, the southern part of the former promised land. But it was also used to describe those who continued to live as Jews in the lands to where they had been scattered. Now come to the New Testament. At the time of the New Testament, the understanding of the term Jew will be similar. It would de describe those who lived in Palestine or Israel and adhered to the Jewish religion. It would include those who remained scattered in the many nations of the Roman Empire, but kept their Jewish identity and followed their Jewish religious traditions. It would also include proselytes of many nations who had embraced the Jewish religion during the dispersion. Because actually, if you compare Judaism with all the pagan religions, it was a far better, far more wonderful religion. The result was that the Jewish communities all scattered all over the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Median Empire, and now the Roman Empire, people wanted what they had because it was much better than they were, what they were brought up with. So many people became converted to Judaism. They became proselytes. And a good example of this would be Simon of Cyrene with his wife and two sons, Rufus and Alexander. This was the black African family, and he obviously they saved up their money and were going to go to the Feast of Passover, which was the Jew of every proselyte, to be at the Feast of Passover in Jerusalem at once in their life, a bit the same way that Muslims want to go to Mecca. So here they are, they save up their money, come to, come to J Jerusalem, but it happens to be the Passover in which Jesus is crucified. Simon stands out because he's a great big black guy, so he's pretty obvious. <laughs> And they pick on him to carry his cross. Hey, black fella, come and carry this cross. So, so Simon is suddenly pressed into a deep intimate association with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. As a result of that, he gets converted. We know that because he becomes one of the teachers in Antioch. And he and another person, also from Africa, so right there in Antioch, we have a, a, a leadership team that was multiracial and multinational. Rufus was one of his sons, who is mentioned in 
one of Paul's letters, and Alexander the coppersmith was his other son, who was an ardent, uh, zealous evangelist that stood up in Acts chapter 19 to defend the gospel, but the trouble was he would not allow Paul to correct him. So he actually went into error and made ship of This is all the one family. Now, that place, Cyrene, if you look at a map today, you will find a town in Libya which is called Shabbat. That is the town of Cyrene. So obviously there was such a powerful community that they changed the name of the town to Shabbat. How interesting. So there's a little stronghold of the, of the, of the, of the seed planted there through that family. And we're going to look at this tomorrow, not now, because I want to show you how seeds, seeds were being scattered all over the world and how when the kingdom came and the gospel came, many of those seeds sprouted into life. Okay? So that's what a Jew was in the time of Jesus. Now here's the definition of Jesus. John's Gospel, chapter 8. And we can look at it if you like. John's Gospel, chapter 8. We're going to begin at, at verse 37. Jesus speaks to those Jews, verse 31, who, who claim to believe in him. He said, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered, we are Abraham's descendants. We are literally Abraham's sperma. We're Abraham's seed, and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's sperm, seed, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you, have, you do what you have seen with your father. They said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But you now seek to kill me, a man who told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, we weren't born in fornication, which is a smack at Jesus, because they knew that Mary was pregnant before she married Joseph. So he was known as a bastard child, to be blunt. That's what he was known as. We weren't born in fornication. We have one Father, God. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth from the, forth from the, I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. Verse 44, You are of your father the devil, and the desire of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and doesn't, does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. And so he goes on to bring deep conviction to them. Amen? Come down to verse um, um, 57. Then the Jews said to him, you are not... He, uh, verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and, you, and you've seen Abraham. Jesus said, most assured, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Then he took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Okay. Right, that's the definition of Jesus. From then on, throughout the Gospels, the book of Acts, the epistles, the term the Jews is used to describe, this is what it used to describe, a company of orthodox religious Jewish fanatics who opposed Jesus and persecuted the early church. They were the ones who crucified Jesus, stoned Stephen, and caused the death, imprisonment, and persecution of many Christians in the early years of the church. All who suffered at their hands because of their faith in Jesus were themselves ethnic Jews. 
However, from that point, these who believed in Jesus refused to be called Jews anymore, but preferred to be called believers, followers of the way, or Christians who were of the circumcision. These were the three terms that they used. This collective term, the Jews, it occurs about 160 times in the Gospels, Acts, and the Epistles. And all but one of the writers of the New Testament were themselves ethnic Jews, but they write about the Jews as some separate group apart from themselves, to which they no longer belong, and who have become the enemies of Jesus and of the gospel of the kingdom. Now, it doesn't just come once, it comes 160 times. So they're talking about the Jews as something else apart from themselves. Because we've come to believe in Jesus, we're, we're of the circumcision. We're of the way. We are believers, we're Christians, but no, we're not of those Jews that hate him and have, are trying to kill him. Now that distinction is so clear and it's repeated so many times, you can't possibly avoid it, 160 times. All right, let's come to the Apostle Paul's definition. One thing I, I didn't tell you in page 50 is the present day definition. I mean, I got onto the Jewish embassy and I said, please tell me how you define a Jew. This is what they said to me. The present day nation of Israel, this is C on page 53. The present day nation of Israel officially recognizes as a Jew or Israeli anyone who can prove Jewish nationality by birth from Jewish parents within the present-day Israel or by direct descent within the last two generations from undiluted Jewish stock living elsewhere. In other words, if you want to be called a Jew, both your grandparents on one side and at least one of your parents must be a pure Jew. But if you're parent has married someone who's not a Jew, you can still claim Jewishness providing you fulfill certain conditions. But once it's gone beyond those two generations, that you've got some Jewish blood in you doesn't define you as a Jew anymore. Hello? And there's lots and lots of people in this present time in, in, in America trying to discover their Jewish roots and saying, I'm a Jew, because 25 generations ago, someone came from Europe as a, as a persecuted Jew. Well, that doesn't make you a Jew. And anyway, what does it matter? Hello? But that was the official definition. You've, you've got to have pure Jewish parentage within the last two generations. You've got to come from pure, undiluted Jewish stock within the last two generations, otherwise you're not a Jew. They can also become a Jew by marriage to a Jew if they accept and practice the Jewish religion, or they can become a Jew by embracing embracing the Jewish religion as a practicing convert, they can become a proselyte. Present-day Israel is largely secular and is full of ethnic Jews who are strongly patriotic concerning their nation Israel, but are atheists, agnostics, or nominal, non-practicing Jews concerning their religion. The vast majority of people who are Jews living in Israel are not practicers of their Jewish religion. Many of them are agnostics, many of them are atheists, and there are some that are just nominal, occasional Jews. But the, the militant practicing minority is a very tiny minority. And the vast majority of them are, are hostile to our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's go on back to page 54. And go to the Apostle Paul's definition. The Apostle Paul gives a more definite, precise definition. He writes, for he is not, this is Romans chapter 2, verse 28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. He then goes on to define true circumcision. This is Philippians 3. Verse 3. We are the true circumcision who worship God in the spirit, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. So the true circumcision must glory in Christ Jesus. So you can't be of the true circumcision if you're not glorying Jesus. And what's more, you have no confidence in your natural Jewish ethnicity. You glory in Christ Jesus, 
You worship God in spirit, and you're basically saying, what I am ethnically is of no consequence whatsoever. He said, now that's a true Jew, and that's the true circumcision. All right, let's move on. See Galatians chapter 6, verse 15, which states, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. But next thing, who are the true seed of Abraham? Let's remember, by the way, that Abraham ethnically came from Iraq. He was an Iraqi. It's, well, look up in your, look it up in your, your atlas, and you'll find out that Ur of the Chaldees is is right there in the middle of Iraq, not far from Babylon. So. So if you're claiming natural ethnicity, then just be careful. <laughs> okay? In purely natural ethnic terms, all the Arab nations have the same claim as the Jews on Abraham as their father, and on that basis could claim equal rights to the promised land. Ishmael was circumcised along with Abraham long before Isaac was born, and the purpose of that circumcision was to seal God's covenant promise concerning the promised land. Read Genesis 17, verses 7, 8, and verse 26. So Abraham and Ishmael were circumcised to seal the covenant with God concerning the physical land, which today we call the promised land. So if we're going to start talking about natural ethnicity, Israel has got as much claim on that land as any of the descendants of Isaac or Jacob. Hello. So just be careful by pushing ethnic, ethnicity too far because it can get you into a lot of trouble. Therefore, Abraham pleaded with God that Ishmael should be his heir, but God emphatically said no. God made a sovereign elective choice and said, the son of Isaac would be Abraham's sole heir. And this wasn't a matter of ethnicity. This was a matter of sovereign choice. Hello. This was said even before Isaac was born. Genesis 17, 15 to 21. Later, God commanded Abraham to listen to his wife and cast out the bondwoman, Hagar, with her son Ishmael because Ishmael would not be allowed to inherit along with Isaac, the son of promise. Genesis 21, 10 and 12. This is repeated several times prophetically in other scriptures. For example, Isaiah chapter 54 and Galatians chapter 4 verses 2 and 30. Nevertheless, God did appear to Hagar and make certain specific promises of blessing to her concerning her son Ishmael. He also promised he would become a great nation. Paul makes it very clear to whom the promises were really made. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. We're reading Romans 9 now, verses 6 to 8. But it is not that the word of God had taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are Israel, nor are they all children, because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac shall your seed be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, and these are my brackets, i.e. natural descendants of Abraham or even Isaac, these are not the children of God, but only the children of promise are counted as the seed. Therefore, Galatians 3, 7, therefore know that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. Number point four on page 55. There is only one seed who will inherit the promises. This seed is the one new corporate seed made up of all who have come to faith in Christ with Jesus as their head, whether they are Jew or Gentile. Come to Galatians chapter 3, reading from verse 14. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak to you in the manner of men, though it's only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is the Christ? So there we're told that's the seed. He's the Christ. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, so after God had made this covenant with Abraham, 430 years later, another covenant was made. And this 
which came 430 years later, the law cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ. Notice that phrase there. That it should be made the promise. Because see, Christ is the eternal one. So the covenant was made with Christ 430 years before the law came into existence. For if the inheritance is of the law, it's no longer promised. But God gave it to Abraham by praise. By promise. So God confirmed the Abrahamic covenant in Christ 430 years before the law was given and three generations before Judah was even born. So the Jews have no ethnic rights to the covenant and only become partakers of the covenant by faith in the same way that the Gentiles do. Is that not clear? Is that not clear? Also, these scriptures make it very clear that the inheritance cannot come through the vehicle of the observance of Moses' law, but can only come by promise and by faith. Note that God made the Abrahamic covenant in Christ 430 years before the law, and Moses' covenant even came into existence. So the covenant of promise through faith in Christ Jesus was, and still is, the only way that Adam and all his seed must come to God. Point five. Like the risen Christ, this one seed has no earthly ethnicity. Writing to Gentile believers in Galatia, Paul writes this, Galatians 3:27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed, and you are heirs according to the promise. Writing to the Gentile believers in Colossae, Paul writes, you need to walk in these ways, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off the, your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge of the image of its creator. He... Here, in the new man, there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision. There is neither barbarian or Scythian, which were other ethnic groups which they had in those days. There is neither slave nor free, but there is Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, this is written not to Jews, but therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dear beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Therefore, becoming the seed of Abraham, inheriting the promises, and becoming God's chosen people has nothing to do with ethnicity and is certainly not a matter of who is or who is not a natural Jew. But it's all a matter of faith through Christ. Whether we are Jew or Gentile is irrelevant. It's only those who are of faith who are of the true line and seed of promise. Okay, now I just want to go on to this and, and that may be the last thing we'll do today. Now, is this making sense to you? All right, let's go on to, and I want to, next page, I want to deal with the olive tree and its branches. A discussion of the olive tree and its branches is a vast subject which would take a long time to treat exhaustively, but here are a few relevant points. In Revelation 5.5, we read it this morning, Jesus is called the root of David, and in Isaiah 11.1, 1, he's called the root of Jesse, out from which the branch grows. Isaiah 53.2 tells us that Jesus will grow as a root out of a dry ground. The eternal Christ, who is without origin or natural ethnicity, is the root out from which the true olive tree of God grows. So the root is not Abraham, and it's not David, it's Christ. Hello? He's the root. Just follow me and you'll follow this argument. The son, in his, in his eternal nature, is, is, is the root out from which the branches of his olive tree grow to become his holy nation. The first branch of, that grew out of that root was probably Abel, because we're told by Jesus, we read it yesterday, Matthew 24, that the righteous blood of Abel which was shed was the beginning of those who were of the promise and were immediately challenged and killed by Cain. So if you like, the war of, 
of the religious persecution of the righteous began in the death and murder of Abraham and by Cain, long before, long before there was, there was a Jewish nation, right back at the beginning. So it starts there. And because Jesus is the eternal root, he was all, the olive tree was already there for the first branch to be grafted into. Are you with me? You're following me? And similarly, Cain was the first branch to be cut off and was not allowed to be part of that root. Now that process continued for many and generations until we finally get to Abraham. I'm certain that Enoch was grafted in, so was Noah and many others. They were already there before Abraham, Isaac and Jacob were grafted in. They were grafted into the root which was already there. The root was Jesus. The root, if, perhaps I better use the phrase, the root was the eternal Christ who is, was, and always will be. Okay, now we come to the incarnation of the eternal Christ as the man Christ Jesus for the purposes of redemption. Now what we're told in several scriptures was that he then becomes a branch of that tree in order to be the savior that he was to become. Now, he's the root, and there's all these branches, including Abraham and David, so he becomes a branch that grows out of David because he has to have a human ethnicity in order to fulfill his, his, his function as the savior of the human race. So he's, he's the branch, in his humanity, but he's the root in his deity. So in one sense, he came out of David, but only in the limited sense of that temporary period of being the man Christ Jesus on earth, the Jew, the Jewish Lamb of God that lived and died to take away the sin of the world and by his blood also to legally and righteously purchase back all that Adam had lost. And that's why Jesus asked this question, which we looked at yesterday, and said to them, all right, just tell me this then. If, 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 if the Christ is David's son, why did David call him Lord? Now, let's get this clear. You see, he can't be the branch and, and, and be Lord. There's got to be something else that he is besides that. Is this making sense to you? So let me just make these two statements. In his incarnation and earthly life, Jesus came out of David, okay? He's the branch. But in his eternal nature, David and Abraham came out of him. Got that? So he's the root. And that's the root that Paul's referring to in Romans chapter 11. When we get to that tomorrow, you'll begin to understand why I'm making an important point of this and how the natural and the unnatural branches can be grafted in. In his incarnation, Jesus himself became the branch prophesied by several prophets. In his humanity, he became a wonderful branch that grew out of the stock, out of that stock to become the savior of the world. As the eternal Christ, he was the root. But when he became a man, he became a branch out of that root which came through the lineage of David. And so, as it says in Revelation 22, 16, it puts it both together, and he's, he's called the root and also the offspring of David. So he was before David, and yet at the same time, he comes after David, because there's an eternal dimension to Christ. There's also, if you like, an incarnate, temporary human dimension to Christ. In his in eternalness, he's the root, and in his humanness, he's the branch. Does that make sense to you? He's the root and the offspring of David. Jesus is the root to which Paul refers in Romans 11, 16 to 24. It's not a Jewish olive tree, although the Jews as natural branches, we'll see why that is tomorrow, should be grafted in much more easily, and they should bring great enrichment. The theme of the olive tree goes right through Genesis, right through from Genesis to Revelation, and to deal with it fully is way outside the scope of this school. We can't cover it all, but I just want to make that point there. 
Have you got the point? Okay. Can we move on? Ready? The land of promise. A physical and a spiritual promised land. When Abraham, this is Hebrews 11, 8 to 16. When Abraham came to dwell physically in the land of, that God had promised him, he dwelt there as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Abraham regarded this land of Canaan as a land of temporary dwelling, so he dwelt in tents with Isaac and Jacob, sons of the promise, because he was looking for another city and he was looking for another land. The land was heavenly Jerusalem, and its foundations and its builder and architect was God. So when Abraham got to the promised land, he didn't say, this is it, let's settle here. He didn't do that. He lived there as a foreigner and as a stranger, because by this time, God had revealed to him that his inheritance was much bigger. It was the whole earth. We read this in Romans chapter 4, verse 13, for example, that the promise is to Abraham and his seed that they would inherit the whole earth. He said, well, Lord, how am I going to do that? He said, well, you're going to need to take the heavenly land. So we read in, in Hebrews that he was looking for a land which was heavenly, and he was looking for a city in that land which had foundations, whose builder and architect was God, and he's talking about heavenly Jerusalem, which was the power and the means of taking that heavenly land out of those dirtying demonic spirits, cleansing that level of heaven to make it pure so then it could be the means of providing the right kind of canopy over earth so all the earth could be brought into the rule and government of God. So he saw the strategy. If I'm going to take the earth, I've got to take the heaven first. If I'm going to transform this demon-cursed earth, I've got to clear the demons out of the heavenly realm so the influence of, of darkness ceases to be the canopy under which the earth is presently living. Does that make sense to you? And so he focused and saw, and Jesus says the same thing. He talks about that same city. And they all see this city whose builder and maker a city which has foundation. He said, I see all that, so here we are, guys. We're in Canaan. It's just a tiny patch of what God's going to give me, so let's not get too settled here. Let's not get satisfied with this. Let's start to get a heavenly vision. Let's get a vision as big as God, and let's start to work with God to see the full inheritance come. Now, this is the language of Abraham and his seed. So what about the earthly land of Israel? Nevertheless, God made certain clear, unambiguous promises concerning a small physical, physical piece of land on earth of approximately 8,000 square miles, whose boundaries are well and clearly defined geographically. This land is known as Canaan and later became Israel. We are forced by these scriptures to recognize two lands. One is spiritual in the heavens, and the other is physical on earth. God revealed to Abraham that he and his seed would inherit the whole earth. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, the whole earth is yours. That's why Abraham didn't just settle down and say, we've arrived. He dwelt as a stranger and a sojourner, along with Isaac and Jacob, heirs of the same promise, looking for the city and the land which were heavenly and were the means of his full inheritance. In the same way, we look at the two cities. Physical Jerusalem, which now exists on earth, which is described for us in Galatians chapter 4 and described again in Hebrews chapter 12. This is present earthly physical Jerusalem and it is described as still being in bondage with her children. She represents the old covenant, Hagar and Mount Sinai and is definite, definitely not of the line that will receive the promises. We are in fact commanded to cast her out for neither she nor her son can inherit with the woman or if you like the city of promise she's a city that represents the law and practices of outward forms of Jewish religion so how can this city inherit the blessings and promises made to Abraham and his seed which can only be received by faith heavenly Jerusalem this city now exists in the heavenlies this the second Jerusalem is not on earth at all, but nevertheless it does already exist. This Jerusalem is free, it's already the mother of all who believe, and it is of the line which will receive the promises, or as all the scriptures. She will be the mother of countless multitudes from all nations, tongues and peoples, without even trying. Amen? The children of the barren are going to be much more than the, than the, than the one that tries to work it all. Through the power of the cross, instead of being married to the law, and it's a picture of the church. 
Heavenly Jerusalem will one day come out of heaven, adorned as a bride for her husband. It's clearly not a city of stone, but it's built entirely of people who are joined to Christ and to one another in love and who have become his corporate bride. This city will be the glory and center of his kingdom forever within a new heaven and a new earth. Once David's tabernacle is established, this spiritual city can be built in the heavenlies, starting at Mount Zion, which is also spiritual in the heavenlies. In the light of this city, which shall we be concentrating on? Which city should be the focus of our prayers and our passion? Reader's example, Psalm 87. Which city is God talking about? Consider Psalm 122. In which way shall we be praying for the peace of Israel? I've already dealt with that. And then we're going to go on. But I think I'm going to stop here. Time has gone. I've had my flags and signals. And I want us to go on tomorrow then to look at the rest of this and then look at the other kind of side of the coin and see God's passion to bring this precious ethnic Israel into, into its inheritance and into his glorious purpose. Amen. God bless you. And I think uh, Natalie's got one or two things.